0: Following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. Good Morning, how's everyone going this morning? All right, that's going to stand there. All right, it's reasonably self explanatory, isn't it? no need for me to mention that at all all right well as i said good morning welcome to shore i'm so glad to be up here speaking to you again it's always nice to see all your bright cheerful faces um last four weeks we've been treated to an excellent series from adam Clawson called god's not dead uh, which was always nice to hear outlining how the world of science and the world of sociology and history have all shown that God is very much alive and well, despite what naysayers might say or critics might say. It was a great encouragement to us that we don't have a blind faith, but we have a faith that is steeped in deep intellectual thought and steeped in in a great discovery of the world around us. It was a very good series. If you haven't heard it, please jump on the podcast on the website and, and have a listen to what he said. And so this morning, I want to shamelessly tack myself on to the end of his message and piggyback off all of the good work that he's done. Except I'm going to go in a slightly different direction. Now, uh, Adam used a passage in Romans 1 as his launching point. He says, It says, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Okay, so from there we kind of talked about how there are two different bodies of work that display God's qualities to us, to tell us about who He is. One is the Bible and the other is creation. And Adam focused for four weeks on creation, the world that is made, that shows us who he is. What I want to do this morning is just kind of rewind a little bit and have a look at the other body of work, the Bible. Because while we can be confident that God is real, we also need to know some of the details, right? I mean, after all, how can we know that the Christian version of God is the correct version. We arrogantly claim that Jesus is the only way to God. So, how can we be sure of that? Maybe Mahatma Gandhi was right when he said that all of the religions lead to God. Well, the answer, of course, lies in this book, the Bible. It itself claims that Jesus is the only way to God. It itself claims that it is the only thing that we need to know who God is. Have a listen to its own words. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is God-breathed, God-inspired. And it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Oh, that's a pretty big claim, right? That it is everything that we need to know. The problem is we don't always like what we read in the pages. I mean, when we read that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him can have eternal life, you know, that's good. We like that one. We're going to pin that one up on the wall. But when he turns around and says that we have to give money to him, oh, I don't know about that one. That one's a little bit harder, you know. I mean, love thy neighbor as yourself, Totally get that. That makes complete sense. But follow me or go to hell? Yeah, that one's a little bit harder to swallow. And there are things in the Bible that are not so easy to just accept. So how do we have confidence in this book, even when it gets uncomfortable or difficult? How do we defend its authenticity to those who say that it's just an outdated outdated tool of oppression. Well, that's what I want to look at today. I want to look at how we can say with confidence that the Bible is our source of knowledge about God, that it is truth. Now, as a piece of literature, the Bible actually comes out in a pretty good light. This book is actually a collection of 66 different books written by over 40 authors over a period of 1600 years okay so that's a long time by a lot of people in a lot of different books and they weren't necessarily looking at all of the books as they were writing the next one so the fact that it is such a unified an incredibly unified single story says so much about its validity The amount of manuscripts and copies that we have that show how accurately replicated it has been throughout the centuries tells us that the book I hold this morning is the same book that was written all of those years ago. So we can have confidence in the book itself. But what about the content? What about the stuff in the book? The stuff that it actually says? Because the problem is that a lot of the Bible is actually pretty impossible to prove. A lot of it is what I call mystical things. It talks about the supernatural. I mean, there's really no way of proving the existence of angels or a virgin birth or dreams, visions, things of that nature. We have to kind of take it at its word. But there are other parts of the Bible that are absolutely testable. The Bible provides us with several litmus tests that we can put to the test. And the idea this morning is that if we can provide solid enough evidence for certain portions of the Bible, large portions of the Bible, if we can say with certainty that this is true, then maybe we can also accept the other parts that are impossible to prove. So what I want to do is I've got four different evidences in these four beautifully, beautiful green bags decorated by my children. Three of these numbers were colored by uh, my six-year-old and one of them by my eight-year-old, and I'm going to let you figure out which is which. <laughs> beautifully done here. So what I'm going to do is we're going to work through some different ideas, some different pictures, images that helped to prove the validity of the bible but instead of me choosing and going from one through to four i thought you guys could have a go and we'd have a little interaction and you can have a choice of which one we're going to do first except number four of course because i want to do that one last that one's my favorite so you have a choice of three all right not too bad so what i thought i'd do is i got a little trivia question and if someone can answer the question right they get the honor of first choice of the bags okay you ready Nice, fairly simple one to start off with. What original languages were the Bible written in? There were three original languages. Oh, uh, yeah. Hand in the back, hand in the back. Hebrew and Greek are two. Got a third one. Family help. Aramaic. Well done. You don't have to come up to the front, buddy. That's fine. You can if you want, but I'm mean, i just saying, you know, just pick a number, one to three is is all good. Two. Excellent. Okay, you had to pick the one that was holding up the other one. Okay, that's fine. All right, number two. What do we have? Ooh, this is interesting. All right. This is straight out of my son's Lego box. He made this for me. This is St. Peter's Cross. Yeah, good job. All right, we're kind of working together, the computer and I, so, uh, you know, changing things around. All right, now I have to find it in my notes. Yeah, there we go. Now, one of the most difficult concepts for people to accept in the Bible, and one of the most important, actually, as well, is the uh, idea that after Jesus was crucified, he came back to life again, the resurrection. Okay, this is a central pillar to our faith, right? This is really what makes the engine go for us. In fact, as Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Okay, so, and as she says, we're to be pitied amongst, above all men, if, if that's not true. Now, of course, this is also something that a lot of people who are not Christians find it really hard to grasp. And I bet if we sat down and really tried to think about it ourselves, we'd probably struggle with it too. The idea of saying that it is actually true that a man died and then came back to life again, okay? So a lot of critics say this is just bogus. But we have the problem of the empty tomb, okay, because that is a very widespread story. It is something that even critics of Christianity in the time, they said that the tomb was empty. So the big theory amongst the critics, amongst the Romans of the day, was that the disciples came And they stole Jesus' body, right? They stole the body out of the tomb to try and prop up their faith, to keep it going, to kind of make it look like, you know, that this is, he is God and he is the Messiah, right? That's the theory. Well, there's a big problem with that. And that is this. This is an upside-down cross, an X-cross, this is the cross that legend says Peter, the chief disciple, was crucified on. Not this one, obviously. This is Lego. Don't be silly. But uh, this is the cross that Peter died on. He died on an upside-down cross, of course, because he did not want to be crucified the same way Jesus did. He didn't feel like he, had, he deserved that honor. But here's the thing. If Peter, the chief disciple, knew that he was that he had stolen the body, that the body had been stolen, that Jesus had not risen from the dead, why would he let himself be killed like this? Why would he allow it to go that far? And not just Peter. In fact, of the 11 disciples that followed Jesus around, not including Judas, he gets excluded because he betrayed Jesus. Bad guy. So of those 11 All of them except John were killed for their faith, what we call martyred, in a range of horrible and creative deaths. They were whipped, they were stabbed, they were crucified, they were other things I don't want to mention. Why would all of them let this happen? Just to prop up a religious idea they knew to be false. Doesn't make any sense. You wouldn't. Now, I understand that someone might let themselves be hurt, okay? You might let yourself go to prison if you're really amped up about generating a religion, okay? You might, you know, let yourself have some injuries. But what is the point of letting yourself die for a faith you know that isn't real? You don't get any of the benefits of the lie. You're dead. You can't enjoy that. And not just one But all of them, all of them, if they knew that they had stolen the body, would not have let it go that far. And then millions of people in the 2,000 years afterwards, dying for their belief in a risen Christ. Something's going on there. They believed in the living Christ. They knew it was real. And that to me is a very strong witness to the reliability of the story. The extreme lengths that people would go following it. Okay, so that is our upside down cross. Very good. All right, second question. Who was the person that wrote the biggest chunk of the Bible by words? Okay, so the biggest number of words. Moses. Very good. I thought we were going to have to struggle with that one for a little bit. Very good. Moses wrote 125,000 words. All right. So like high school. But so he wrote a lot of words. In fact, it's about 20% of your Bible. The other four in the top five are Ezra, Luke, Jeremiah, and then Paul. I would have guessed Paul, but that's just me. All right. So anyway, nice little useless trivia for you. Which number? One or three? Three again, the one that's propping up number one again. Goodness, go instead of All right, here we go. Okay, all right. Now, as I said at the beginning, the Bible offers up several litmus tests, things that we can go and prove including a myriad of historical references, events, places, battles, nations, kings. Things that we have written down in the Bible that have a claim for an historical moment, a place and a time in history that we can then go and look to find evidence of. So I'm talking about archaeology. And that's what people have done. For the last couple of hundred years, people from all around the world have descended upon Israel and its surrounding areas, the setting of the Bible. And they've grabbed their shovels, admittedly probably better ones than this, and they've gone digging for evidence about what we read in the Bible. And you know what they found? Time and time and time and time again, they are unearthing evidence that proves the historical accuracy of the Bible. Way too many to mention here. I mean, absolutely way too many to mention. So what I'm going to do instead, I did want to highlight some. So I'm going to present my top 10 personal favorite archaeological discoveries to prove the biblical story. The name is a work in progress, so we'll, we'll, we'll work on that. All right, number 10. The Black Obelisk of Shalmaneser. Okay, this was discovered in 1846 and dated back to 825 BC, so before Christ. The stone pillar shows the earliest picture of a biblical figure. You can't see it. It's very small. But it's probably King Jehu. In fact, it says Jehu, son of Omri. King Jehu of Israel bowing down to King Shalmaneser. Right there on the pillar. As it's, um, and Jehu, of course, is, is a figure described in the Bible. Number nine, the Merneptah Stel, Stel, Steli, Stella discovered in 1896 and dated to 1209 BC. So that's 3,000 years old. That's a lot. It is the first mention of Israel in the historical record. This is an, an Egyptian um, Pillary th- type thing. So this mentions Israel being in Canaan. So at least as early as 1209 BC, we have historical evidence of Israel being in the promised land. Okay, Number eight, we're going to fast forward to the Old uh, New Testament now. Discovered in 1968, this is the crucified man. I decided not to put a picture of the actual crucified man on there. And instead, this is his ossuary. This is his um, coffin. And it shows a first-century Jerusalem man being crucified by the Romans. What does that tell us? It proves that the Romans were conducting those sorts of executions in that time and in that place where Jesus was crucified, and they were using nails. So the description in the Bible is a very accurate description of what would have happened in that day. Number seven, Hatusas. Now, up until the beginning of the 20th century, critics had pointed to a complete lack of evidence of the Hittite kingdom. What are you doing, Fleur? Get out of here. Uh, the Hittite kingdom, it was mentioned several times in the Bible, and they said, there's no evidence. This whole kingdom, it doesn't exist. The Bible is debunked. Well, until 1906, when they discovered not only evidence of the kingdom, but its capital city, Hattusis. And they uncovered the whole city and even included a whole archive of clay tablets describing their culture and their history. So, yep, there goes that idea. Number six, the Gilgamesh Epic. You may have heard of this one. This is an ancient Mesopotamian uh, poem, history poem, from around 2100 BC, 4,000 years ago. And it describes, amongst other things, a great flood event. In fact, several ancient documents illustrate a massive consuming flood in their stories. The details are changed, of course, as the cultures change and and, uh, grow. But the flood remains the same. And this makes sense of the biblical story of all of creation basically funneling down into one family and then all of the nations spreading out from Noah and his family after the flood. That they all have that common heritage. Number five, the Tel stella This is another example of critics pointing to an absence of evidence as an evidence of absence. See, up until this discovery, there had been no evidence uncovered about the great King David. Okay, David had never been mentioned. and That's a big problem because he's kind of a central figure for the Christian story. But then in 1993, they discovered the Tel Stella. and discovered... That uh, the tablet mentioned, amongst other things, the house of David. Number four, Sennacherib's Annals. Really did not want to say that wrong. This is a series of ancient Assyrian pillars describing the actions of King Sennacherib of Assyria, okay, and includes the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel and its dispersion of people amongst the Assyrian empire, which was In the Bible and it also includes the siege of Jerusalem during the time of King Hezekiah now what's interesting about this is while um, Sennacherib claims victory over Hezekiah it does not mention the destruction of the city of Jerusalem which you would it's not something you would accidentally leave out of your history if it actually happened so that is a very strong evidence that the city was not actually destroyed then you look in the Bible And you see the story of how God saved Jerusalem from the Assyrians through a miracle. Again, backing up the biblical story. All right, number three, the cylinders of Nabonidus. Okay, now I like this one because it refers to the history of Daniel, and it's my favorite biblical character. But historians had a problem because they had not found any evidence of Belshazzar, who is the second king during Daniel's time in Babylon. In fact, the historical record showed that Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon before the Persians took over. So that's a real problem. Until the cylinders turned up and they noted that Belshazzar was the son of Nabonidus and a co-regent, okay? So Nabonidus was the head king and Belshazzar was the one who controlled Babylon while Nabonidus was off doing something else. That makes it very interesting when we read in Daniel chapter 5, verse 16, when Belshazzar, being very impressed with Daniel, offers him the third highest position in the kingdom. Why the third highest? Because Belshazzar was the second. Nebuchadnezzar was the first. Interesting little point there. All right. Number two, Jericho. The ancient city of Jericho. We all know the story. Hopefully, if not, that's fine. Go to Joshua uh, chapter 6, and you'll see the Israelites destroying the city of Jericho by walking around it a lot and shouting, and all of the walls came crumbling down. So in 1907, they unearthed the city, but they didn't really research it properly until the 50s. And in the 50s, what they discovered was the walls of Jericho had tumbled down. In fact, the reports say that it was the kind of damage you would expect from an earthquake, and the insides of the city were burnt by fire. Earthquake tumbling down, yeah, yeah, that fits, that fits. All right, number one, the most famous of them all, the Dead Sea Scrolls. 1946, a Bedouin shepherd is stumbles across a series of caves near the Dead Sea in Israel. Inside the caves are nearly 1,000 ancient documents, mostly Old Testament scripture. Now, what is most significant about this is when they dated these scriptures, they dated to previous to Jesus. They dated to before Jesus came. The oldest manuscripts that we had found. And that's important because... There are prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Jesus that a lot of critics had said were written after the fact. Someone came along and they added it to the Old Testament books. Ah, but there's a problem because the Dead Sea Scrolls include those passages and they were written before Jesus came. This changed the landscape of criticism against the Bible, Dead Sea Scrolls. So time and time again, We are unearthing physical evidence that proves the story. And what's interesting to me is that apart from the Dead Sea Scrolls, every one of the things that I had mentioned were not written by God's people. They were not created by God's people. They were not written for religious purposes. They were not written to defend the Christian story. They're from the leaders of the people around them. And yet it still corroborates our story. Not bad, not bad. Centuries of archaeological digs, excavations pointing at a singular idea. No matter what you feel about the message of the Bible, it is steeped in accurate historical detail. (laughs) Okay, right, moving on. Now, you don't get a choice anymore because I'm going to do this one next. Tired of you falling over. What I have here is a crown of thorns. I mean, sort of. It's kind of, you know, not really. But it'll work for today. This is one of the symbols of Christ, our great Messiah, our Savior. What I love about this, it is a beautiful picture of how Jesus saved us, revealing his power in weakness, of a God becoming human and dying for us to save us from our sins, majesty in the commonplace, victory in defeat, life in death. It's a dichotomy that has captured the souls of humans for 2,000 years. We are familiar with this concept strength and weakness like the air we breathe. It is comfortable and familiar to us. But you know what? In the first century, when the story of Jesus played out, not familiar at all. You see, they had this really, really strange idea back then. Uh, I, this is, this is going to be weird for you. I get this. But they believed that the strong ones were the strong ones. Right? Are you following me? And the weak ones... We're the weak ones, right? The strong are the strong, the weak are the weak. Gods didn't die. Heroes didn't get defeated by their enemies. And they certainly, kings wore crowns of gold, not of thorns. This simply didn't make sense. fact, Paul states it perfectly. He says later on, he says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. You see, when the story of Jesus was first presented, it sounded like absolute madness. To the Jews, they just could not get past the fact that the Messiah, the one that had been promised to them, their great Savior that had been promised by God, the one who was going to be like Moses. They could not get their head around how this person could fail so spectacularly. He was supposed to overthrow the Romans, deliver them from slavery, just like Moses, not die at their hands. The Exodus story did not have Moses going and dying in Egypt. That's not how it worked. So the Jews thought this is preposterous. They just can't get past a dying Messiah. And the Greeks, well, they just thought it was a stupid story because after all, I mean, apart from the fact that you've got a God who dies, I mean, come on, that doesn't happen. I mean, here you've got a story of a God becoming a human, right, so that he can pay the penalty for all of the things that the humans had done wrong. No, that's what people are supposed to do. They pay their own penalties. In fact, that's why God's created men, so that they could kill them off right? That's the story. That's how God's acted. This made no sense. And here's my point. If the story of Jesus is just that, a story concocted by the early Christians as a, I don't know, a way to make sense of the universe or a way to control people, it is a very poorly constructed story. It's a bad story. It is not going to make the bestseller list. It doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't. That's not the way they would have viewed God. That God is weak. And yet here we are. 2,000 years later, gathering together to worship a defeated king. Because he's not defeated, is he? Strength really does come stronger in weakness. Because brambles can make a more majestic crown than anything any monarch has ever worn before or since. That is the power of the story of Jesus strength and weakness. All right. Last one, I promise you. This is my favorite. I like this. Bag number four. Don't be like that. Come on out. Here we go. I have a coin. Two dollar coin. I actually want that bag back. I'm going to use that again. Short-sighted of me. All right. See, to me, this is the greatest evidence of the validity of the biblical story. Let me start with an interesting passage way back in the beginning of the Bible in in the book of Deuteronomy, okay? Chapter 18, don't groan, okay? This will be all right. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded, a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, is to be put to death. Lovely story. You may say to yourselves... How can we know a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not come true, does not take place or come true, that is the message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. Okay, so the Bible takes prophecy very, very seriously, predictive prophecy. The idea of predicting the future, right? It takes it very seriously. Good because it just so happens it does a lot of it itself. There are a lot of predictions about the future in the Bible, so here is a perfect place that we can test its validity. And you know what? It does really well, they all come true. Now, my first place I would go is the book of Daniel because as I said, I like it. And there's some fantastically accurate predictions about the kingdoms and the nations that were about to unfold during that time, from the time of Daniel through to the time of Jesus. But we're going to go through the book of Daniel in more detail next year. So no pixies on that one yet. I'm sorry. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the litany of prophecies made about Jesus, okay? So we're familiar with some of them. The Old Testament is rife, with prophecies about Jesus, and they all come true, which is fantastic. Now, Connie Critic may have a little bit of a problem here. You see, Connie Critic says, well, of course he fulfilled the prophecies because he read them. They're all in the Old Testament, so he read them. He's like, okay, I need to go here and do this and this, and then he goes and does it. Self-fulfilling prophecies, right? Well, that's actually true of some of them, there are some that Jesus read and He said, I am this person, I'm going to go fulfill this prophecy. But then there are some that He can't. Like, being born in Bethlehem. Not a very easy task for a person who has not been born to do, you know, unless you're God. So there are a lot of prophecies that He couldn't do by Himself. Okay, Connie Critic says, but... A lot of these prophecies were added after the fact. We know this, right? Because they came in and they added in the second century. We talked about this. But then, of course, Dead Sea Scrolls came along and proved that one to be false as well. Connie Critic's not quite done yet. You see, because she says, well, come on. I mean, there have been billions of people who have lived on the earth. There's a really good chance that someone has just accidentally fulfilled them, right? I mean, isn't there a chance that he just accidentally kind of stumbled into this stuff people are born in bethlehem all the time right so it's possible that someone could have fulfilled all of these prophecies right (laughs) well i'm glad you asked and so is a man by the name of peter w stoner great name by the way mathematician he decided to test that exact idea what are the probabilities of someone accidentally fulfilling these prophecies now, I'm not going to get into exactly how he gets the, his numbers. It's a really good, I read it over a little bit, and it's solid methodology here. You should really go and check it out sometime. I just want to give you a summary of what he said. Okay. He calculated the chance of one person fulfilling eight prophecies made about Jesus. Okay. Eight prophecies that he could not have fulfilled himself. And He did this calculations and to visualize it. He gave an illustration of silver dollars um, but you know that doesn't mean anything to us. So I did a little um Calculations and we've got I've got a two dollar coin. So we're going to use the illustration of two dollar coins This two dollar coin is 26 and a half millimeters wide and 2.7 millimeters deep It kind of looks silly in this big bag doesn't it? but let's imagine for a second that we fill this whole bag full of $2 coins. I'd be feeling pretty good about holding this bag, I would say at this point. But let's say that you take this coin here and you put a mark on it, okay? And I blindfold myself and you throw it in the bag and mix it all around, okay? And then with my blindfold on, I put my hand in the bag and I rummage around all of these coins and I pull out a coin and it's this exact coin with the mark on it. That'd be pretty impressive, wouldn't it? I mean, those would be pretty steep odds, right? Good, because that's not even close to what Stoner had in mind. All right, when he did his calculations, this is what he came up with. He said, if you took $2 coins, he didn't say $2 coins, but you get one of me. If you took these coins and you covered the entire country of New Zealand, Cape Reinga, all the way down to Bluff, covered in $2 coins. And then you started stacking them. And you stacked them seven feet deep. That's this tall. Seven feet, 2.13 meters deep, full of $2 coins. And then you sent me to go dive into this uh, sea of coins, Scrooge McDuck style, somewhere down near Taranaki, okay? And I dove in with my blindfold and I'm swimming around, swimming around, and I grab a coin. And I come up, I take off my blindfold, and lo and behold, it's this coin. Those are the chances of a person accidentally fulfilling those prophecies one chance in 100 million billion. That is one with 17 zeros after it. Okay. Well, let's take it another step, shall we? Let's say we increase the number of prophecies from 8 to 16. Now, you don't just double it. You don't just double the number of coins. It goes up exponentially. So now we have to create a ball of coins, okay? So a ball that is as tall and wide and deep, filled with enough $2 coins to get our probability of 16 prophecies. All right, you're you're imagining this ball. That ball would not fit in the space between the sun and Pluto. And in there is one coin. One chance. Oh, and that's 16 prophecies, by the way. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies. It led Stoner to make the understatement of the year. He said, Any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. So as the band comes up, what what can we say? Can we possibly say that if the Bible proves itself so thoroughly in places where we can test it, perhaps it is also trustworthy in places where we cannot? If God has shown His hand so convincingly in some places. Perhaps we're given the benefit of the doubt. Benefit of the doubt in others. Or put it another way. Dare we ignore his voice in some places when his his authorship is screaming in others. I believe in the Bible. I believe. As Paul has said, that this is nothing other than the breath and the power of God himself. It is my anchor. It is the light for my path. It is the supreme absolute in a world of uncertainty, saturated by differing opinions and ideas. And you know what? The critics can say what they say. They can beat their head against this as much as they want. Because at the end of the day, I do not put my hope in their words. I do not put my hope in their opinions, in their thinking. I do not put my hope in human intuition, Kiwi ingenuity. I don't put my hope in these things. I do not even put my hope in my own ability to understand the world. I don't put my hope in my emotions. I put my hope in the living, breathing Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. I put my hope in Him. This has been a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more of our teaching resources,